Praise the Lord. It's good to be in God's house this morning. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue on with the series that we have been doing for the last couple of weeks. Who's to blame? Who can remember what we talked about in the first week? Anyone? Week one? No, that was last week. Family members, that's right. Thank you, Jonathan. I do feel like he had some assistance with that. That was very, very specific. Sounds like someone was taking notes and shared that with Jonathan. Amen. Yes, first week we spoke about how we blame our family often. Right, we talk about the fact that, well, you know, my parents treated me like this and this is why I am the way I am. And the parents turn around and the parents say, well, my parents treated me like that and that's why I raised my kids like that. And the grandparents say, well, you should have seen my parents. And it just, it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And we blame our family, we blame our upbringing, we blame how the family treats us. We blame what happens on at the home. And, and that's not to say sometimes these things are fair. Sometimes they're not fair. I get that, right? But we get nowhere in life by just not taking responsibility and saying, well, it's not my fault. I'm the way I am because of my family, so I can't change it, right? That doesn't work. So we have to learn to take responsibility. That was the first week. The second week, we spoke about blaming the church. It's the church's fault that I'm like this. If you had my pastor, you would understand why I'm so messed up. <laughs> Amen. You know, we blame the church. We say it's the church's fault that I'm like this, you know, and and things happen in church that are not right. Things happen in church that are not fair. You know, whenever you get and, and we spoke last week about this revelation for some people, the church is not perfect. It's why? It's full of unperfect people. We make mistakes, every single one of us. Right? And we spoke last week how instead of um, you know, blaming other people in the church, well, it's this person's fault that I left church. It's this person's fault because, you know, they offended me and I can't forgive them and they hurt me too deeply, so I'm not gonna live for God anymore. You've just given away all your power to somebody else to change your life because you can't change because it's not your fault. Instead of taking responsibility and extending grace to our brothers and sisters, understanding that since we all make mistakes, at some point you are going to need somebody to extend grace to you. Amen? Because we all make mistakes. We all say things we shouldn't say. We all say things we don't mean to say. We all say things that are taken the wrong way. Amen. But we are to extend grace, right? And, and while we run around, let me just, this is just something God just dropped into my mind. While we run around blaming the church for stuff, right? It doesn't spread a good witness because out there, everybody thinks the church is perfect. And if we're out there all offended because the church is not perfect, what does that say? It validates what the world thinks about us. Amen. But when we're out in the world with our witness, we understand that our brothers and our sisters love us, but sometimes need grace. Right? It's <laughs> a nice way of putting it, right, Sister Melle? They sometimes need grace. Right? We understand that we're not perfect, but we love Jesus. 
Amen. And that's why we are here. Amen. And this morning we are going to carry on talking about what we are going to talk about. And today we're going to talk about blaming the enemy. Turn to the person next to you say, blaming the enemy. Who's to blame? This is what we're on a journey about. Who's to blame? Blaming the family, blaming the church, and now blaming the enemy. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 to 14 says this, And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou comest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, for thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. Amen. Talking about blaming the enemy. Praise the Lord. Ushers, don't forget, if there's too much noise coming over there, get on top of them and tell them, hey, pay attention. Amen. All right. Antonia was the name of a lady who loved the outdoors. Mostly, she loved the fact that her workplace was a zoo. And she loved that she could wake up every morning hearing the sounds of animals. She loved the fact that her day, along with her husband Jan, her day, or Jan, maybe you would say it, her day would involve feeding orphaned lion cubs and helping little babies feed and caring for sick animals. It was everything she had ever wanted to do. She woke up every morning to the sound of one of the largest menageries in all of Europe. She turned her villa in the zoo into this virtual Garden of Eden kind of environment with beautiful flowers and trees and fruit where she would care for little animals and things like that where you know she would bottle feed orphan cubs and, and all sorts of amazing stuff she had a wonderful life and you know on any given day when visitors would come to the zoo they would see animals just random animals antelopes gazelles whatever just in the yard grazing in uh, Antonia's yard and along with her husband Jan you know, she, if you ever asked her, why do you love animals so much? She would quickly say that as a Christian, she felt like she was responsible to care for God's creation. But one day, the enemy came into her garden. As the German Blitzkrieg rolled across Poland and the Warsaw Zoo, where this lady and her husband worked, was bombed by the German Air Force. The zoo was almost completely wiped out along with many of the world's most exotic animals that had been collected for safekeeping at this zoo. Antonia was devastated when the Nazi SS arrived one day.
to round up everything that was left. Most of the surviving animals from the Warsaw Zoo were then shipped over to Germany. And these guards, the SS, turned what was left of this zoo into their private game preserve, running around shooting and hunting any animals that were left. When they had killed all the animals that were in the zoo and shipped off everything that was left, the renowned Warsaw Zoo was left eerily empty and devoid of all animals. But when the Nazis unexpectedly made Jan the superintendent of parks in Warsaw, God opened doors that would turn that massacre into a miracle. Because not far from that zoo, one of the most monstrous evils of the 20th century was happening in the Jewish ghetto. No lions or tigers could ever be more beastly than those SS guards, those predators who were systematically starving thousands of Jewish people as they got ready to ship them off to a camp to be put to death simply for being Jewish. So the Zabinskis, this was their last name, the Zabinskis hatched a plan to turn the rubble of their dashed dreams into building blocks for something far better. Antonia and her husband did not give up. They replaced all the animals in the zoo with pigs. And they turned the zoo into a pig farm. It was written in a book about them that the Nazis were amused with this. They could never imagine, however, that what looked like a humiliation for this zookeeper, having looked after hundreds of different animals now just looking after pigs they could never imagine that this zookeeper was cleverly using his position as the director of Warsaw Parks to smuggle pork into the starving Jewish ghetto to feed the Orthodox Jews see the Germans didn't realize that the Jews were so desperate they would eat pork and so they did nothing to stop Zabrinsky from feeding them nor did they know that all of the empty cages and tunnels and warrens underneath the zoo had been turned into a labyrinth of hiding places for more than 300 Jews who were smuggled out of the ghetto right under the nose of the Nazis. You ever heard that expression, when life gives you lemons to make lemonade? When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's really easy to say that. You ever get frustrated when you're in the middle of a struggle, in the middle of a situation, and someone says, well, when life gives you lemons, you should make lemonade. It's really not helpful, is it? It's much easier to say it than to actually do it. Sometimes the difficulties that we encounter in life are enormous. And many times they can seem outside of our control. And many, many people, if we were faced with the same circumstances that the Zabrinskis were faced with in Poland in, in 1939, many of us would struggle to identify any kind of positive thing in that situation. Many of us would struggle to even turn that negative situation into something positive. And many people would be more inclined to blame the enemy for destroying 
a good thing. Amen? Many of us would be inclined to blame the enemy for destroying a good thing. But here's the thing. Wallowing in our misery does not move things forward. It just leaves us chained to yesterday. Amen? Here is the point. We can blame the enemy for causing our troubles, and we can wallow in our misery, or we can turn our trouble into a blessing. They are our choices. You know, and, and Saul is a biblical example of somebody who blamed the enemy. He blamed the enemy. The scripture tells us that he was anointed to be king over God's people. Amen. He was anointed to lead God's people. But, but that's not all because not only was he anointed to be king, but God gave him an assignment as well. God asked him to do something. We find it in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this, then said the Lord of hosts, thus said the Lord of hosts, sorry, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass or donkey. You see, when you are anointed to responsibility, there often comes an assignment with it, right? Saul was anointed to be king, and now he was given an assignment as well. The directive was very, very clear. He was to utterly destroy everything. But that's not what Saul did, was it? Amen? First, he did go what he did go and head off towards battle. He did go and fight. But first Samuel fifteen verse nine reveals that Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Saul had been given an assignment, but instead of doing the right thing, he did his own thing. So why is blaming the enemy so tempting? And why is it so easy to do? Think about that. We blame our enemy all the time. Why? Hmm. Think about that. You know, Saul's response to the prophet Samuel is quite interesting. See, God had forewarned Samuel. And said, hey, Saul's been disobedient. I want you to go and see him. So, so Samuel goes off to confront the man that he had anointed to be king. And when confronted by the prophet Samuel, Saul spoke first and said, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel responded, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I heard? Saul then changed his tune. He's like, oh. Clearly, Samuel's ears are working. He can hear the sheep. He can hear the cattle that I was meant to kill. At first, he said, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But when he was confronted with the noise of the sheep 
And the oxen, Saul said, well, they bought them from the Amalekites, there's the word. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice that first of all, he claimed to have done what God had instructed. But then it was the people's fault. The people did this. The people were the ones who bought this. Not my fault. The people did it. They did it, right? They were the ones who spared the sheep and the oxen. And then supposedly, they did it for divine purposes. Amen? You see, Saul blamed Saul passed the blame to the people. He's saying, I had nothing to do with it. I know I didn't do what God said, but it was out of my hands anyway. The people were the ones who were responsible. It's not my fault. I know I'm the king. I know I should be in charge. But you know, they just did it and they didn't listen to me. So it's not my fault. It's not my fault. You know, Saul is trying to minimize Right? What he's done. He's like, okay, so Samuel, you can see we got rid of all the bad stuff, all the bad sheep, all the bad donkeys, all the bad people. We got rid of all of them, but we've just kept just the best of the sheep. Just the best of the oxen, right? He's trying to he's trying to justify it. You know, we only, he's he's saying, Don't blame me. And if you do want to blame me, then it's really not that big of a deal. Because we only kept the good stuff, right? But he's missing the point. He's missing the point because God gave him a clear instruction to destroy. Now, here's Saul's next mistake. You ready? And this is one that we can fall into. Right? Saul attempted to minimize things, and then he attempted to spiritualize things. To spiritualize things. We kept the best to use as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Isn't this good? Doesn't God want us to bring a sacrifice? Aren't we pleasing God by bringing a sacrifice? He's trying to spiritualize things. But Samuel wasn't impressed with Saul's attempt to spiritualize things because Samuel saw it exactly as it was. Saul had decided to do his own thing rather than fulfill the commandments of God. You know, Saul tried to first minimize and then over-spiritualize his discipline. His discipline, his disobedience. I'm really distracted with that music outside. He played the blame game. He was not responsible. It was somebody else's fault, somebody else's responsibility. But this was not the first time that Saul tried to blame somebody else. Amen. And it comes back to our text, right? 1 Samuel 13 verse 6. It says this, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits, right? This is a little bit earlier on in the narrative, and Saul, to his credit, is waiting for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice. Right? But Samuel is running late. Samuel is not there, and so Saul does Samuel's job for him something that he was not meant to do. He sacrificed to the Lord himself without waiting for Samuel. Now, as is often the case, as soon as Saul had finished the offering, who should rock up but Samuel? And he confronts Saul and he says, what have you done? Right? 
And here is, here is his response. Look at this. First Samuel 13. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me now to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. He blames the Philistines. It's the Philistines' fault that I had to break what God had asked me to do. I know that I was meant to wait for you, Samuel, but it's the enemy's fault. It's their fault. If they weren't threatening my people... If they weren't there ready to attack, I wouldn't have had to do this. It's their fault. He also blames Samuel. It's your fault, Samuel. You are running late. You are meant to be here. Notice how he's shunting responsibility to everybody else but himself. This is not me. It's somebody else. It's somebody else. Right? But again, Samuel was not impressed with Saul's actions, nor with his reasoning. Samuel said, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Now, these stories that we're talking about here, you know, they, they show a character flaw in Samuel, in Samuel, in Saul. Saul refused to take ownership of his mistakes. Instead, he was always seeking to pass the buck, to blame somebody else. It was the people's fault. They were fearful. It was the enemy's fault. They were mighty in number. It was Samuel's fault. He didn't come on time. Everything was always somebody else's fault, somebody else's responsibility. And we can learn much from this. First of all, and this might be a bit of a light bulb moment for people, but the enemy is not the central issue. Amen? For Saul, the enemy was not his main problem. Saul's main problem, as it says up there, was self. That was his problem. Saul was the one who disobeyed God. Saul was the one who was at fault. Saul was the one who was to be blamed, not the Philistines. So why do we often blame the enemy? In our case as Christians, we often blame the devil for things which we are responsible for. Well, you've got a bad attitude. It's the devil's fault. I'm getting angry. It's the devil's fault. He's tempting me. Can I tell you that sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize things? It's not the devil's fault. Now, the devil will use things. Hello? The devil will use things. When we have a problem within ourselves, and we take it out on somebody else, it's not the devil's fault. He uses those things to bring division into families and bring division into church. But the devil doesn't make you do it. He doesn't have that power. But he uses your willingness to blame him to cause havoc. But what would happen instead if we turn around and said, no, you know what? I need to learn here. This is me. I need to correct my thinking. I need to correct my thoughts. I need to get my life right. Amen. You know, the devil does not do most of the things that he gets the credit for. 
I think we under misunderstand the devil sometimes. You know, we treat him as this big, bad boogeyman. You know, the weakest saint has more power than the devil. The youngest child who can breathe the name of Jesus has more power than the devil. Right? The devil cannot make you sin. The devil cannot make you fall. These things happen because we make decisions and we choose to act on them. And then we turn around and go, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do it. He's not that powerful. He's really not. He's nothing more than an angel. Amen? Amen. You're looking at me like I'm preaching something new. And here's, here's the truth of the matter. Most of us don't need the devil to mess things up in our life. We're quite good at messing things up in our life all by ourselves. What we're not good at doing is recognizing that we need to take responsibility instead of just blaming the enemy. Amen? You know, much of the problem we have is that we lack a proper understanding of trouble. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are we going through hard times? Why do the trials of life happen? Is it really because the devil's got nothing better to do? Yeah, and this is the other thing, all part and parcel of with misunderstanding the devil. You know, the devil does not have all power. The devil does not know everything. The devil cannot be everywhere at once. What makes you think you are special enough that the devil will single you out out of the thousands and thousands and millions of other people who he could be paying attention to? He ain't got the time. Just putting it out there. Amen? <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm crazy. He doesn't have the time, right? Often what happens is we allow things to happen in our life. We don't make the right choices. We do the wrong thing. We react. Something happens in the family. A fight starts. It's not the devil's fault. It's your fault. You can make a difference. Don't give your power to the devil and go, oh, the devil made me do it. No, you did it. Repent. Ask for forgiveness if you need to ask for forgiveness. Restore the relationship and move on. Amen? Amen. But why do we encounter trouble? See, we encounter it every day. But often we don't know what to do with it. But dealing with trouble is a part of life, even for a Christian. You know, people often have this misjudged idea that when you become a Christian, everything is wonderful and amazing. Newsflash, I still have bills to pay. I still have to drag my sorry carcass out of bed and get to church, to get to work on a Monday. I've still got things I've got to do. I've got to eat. I've got bills to pay. I've got stuff going on in my life. My fingers are still hurting from fishing. You know, I jarred my other finger on this hand playing basketball yesterday. This is hurting now. My whole body has aches and pains. We have trouble. But as Christians, we should be able to deal with it a bit better. Amen? Because we have the help of the Lord. Consider what Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul encouraged Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy was Paul's son in the gospel, so it was not out of place for Paul to tell Timothy, hey, toughen up a little bit, stand strong, endure hardship. Paul wrote, be strong. Actually, I've got it here. This charge I commit unto you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that went before on you, that you by them might as war a good warfare. Amen? Okay. That wasn't the scripture I thought it had. First Timothy 1.18, Paul says, This charge I commit unto thee, 
that you mightest war a good warfare. See, Paul understood that life is not a bed of roses. Life is not meant to be easy, amen. But key to the battle was in Timothy to hold on to the principles that had already been spoken over his life. Or in other words, Timothy was to hold on to his faith in God. That God had a purpose and a plan. Amen. Paul knew what it was like to encounter troubles as well. You know, he wrote his letter to the church of Corinth when things got rough while he was in Asia. And listen to what he said. He said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Wow. You know, we have this image of the Apostle Paul as this great preacher on fire, you know, healing people, everything going great. Paul never had a day of trouble in his life. You know, God was there meeting his needs. Here he said, I despaired of life. He's saying, Lord, I just want to end this. This is enough. I'm done. I'm finished. I don't want to hang out here anymore. Can I come home and be with you now, Jesus, is what he's saying, right? We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But he added, But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we set our hopes that he will continue to deliver us amen paul understood something here he understood that life is going to be difficult life is going to be hard but he understood also that as a christian god had promised to deliver him and god had come through in the past and god was going to come through again so he wasn't going to get all down in the molly grubs and blame the enemy for attacking him he's going to say no i'm just going to endure i'm going to keep my faith in jesus and i'm going to keep walking for him Amen. Amen. See, when Paul said to Timothy, be strong and endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he was speaking from personal experience. See, Paul understood that even though things get tough, God knows exactly where we are. And God knows exactly what we are going through. And here's the thing. When we get to the place where we have no alternatives left but God, we are not in a bad place. I'm going to say that again. In life, when we don't understand, when things are happening and we're struggling and there seems to be nothing positive in our life that we can look at except our relationship with God, that is the very best place to be. Because it is in those moments of life when God can show up, when we cannot pull ourselves out, when we're just going through step by step by step, wondering when life is going to get better, it is then you rely on God even more. And God can come through in our life. Here's the point. If we are always blaming the enemy, then we are never accepting personal responsibility. James chapter 1 Verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations or various temptations. You know, the word temptations there really is probably better translated as testing 
or trials. You know, James, and, and think, how do you count it all joy? I mean, if, if you're constantly in trials, this scripture is like the worst scripture in the world for you. Count it all joy? Count it all, are you serious? When I'm in the middle of trials, when I'm in the middle of temptations, how is that even possible? See, James is referring to a blessing that comes through the test. You know, it's not talking about temptations from Satan. It's talking about things that happen in life that are either sent by God or allowed by God. And the purpose of the trials in life that we go through are for us to learn how to be steadfast. Turn to the person next to you say, steadfast. The word diverse means multicolored and multi-sized. That's what diverse means. As a matter of fact, the Greek word from diverse is the same root word from which we get polka dot. You know what a polka dot is? Polka dots. Right? It's a fabric pattern. When we read divers' temptations, we could say life is filled with trials like polka dots spread out across our entire lives of different sizes and different colors. You know, our lives are dotted with trials. They may be in the form of affliction. They may be in sickness. They may be in sorrow. They may be in physical trials, financial trials, psychological trials, spiritual trials. Our life is full of them. But James gives us direction and instruction on how to deal with them. He really does. He says to count it all joy. Well, how do you count joy? You know, count it is a phrase that means to look forward. It's a means to look forward in our journey and realize that it's when we look forward in our journey that we discover joy. What are we to look forward to? What is coming our way that could cause us to have joy in the midst of our trouble? You know, for me, there's many, many things. You know, I get through get through work i have things going on stuff's happening but for me i look forward through the week short term i look forward through the week and i go yes sunday's coming sunday's coming and i'm going to be able to be in god's presence you know bring it down even even shorter time frame than that right i go through trials at work i go through trials in life things are going on i look forward and i say you know what i'm going to go home i'm going to go to sleep I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be able to talk with Jesus in my prayer time again. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm focused on. Amen. You want to look a little bit bigger. One day Jesus is coming to take his church away. One day the trumpet is going to sound. One day it's going to be worth it all. And so, yeah, life might be good. Life might be bad. Trials might be happening. But I look forward to the day when one day I will be with Jesus. That's how we can count it all joy. We look forward to a joy that is to come through the middle of life's trials. Amen. Amen. The other thing is that we know that God will bring us out of trouble. See, here's the thing. We must not allow our feelings to rule over our knowledge of God. Let's say it again. We must not allow our feelings to overrule our knowledge of God. We spoke a little bit about this last week. Here's a scripture for you. Romans 8.28 And we feel that all things work together for good. Is that what it says? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. 
it does not say feel. Sometimes it might not feel like things are working out for good at all. Sometimes it might feel like life cannot get any worse. But we know, despite our feelings, that when we are in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, things will work out for our good. We might not understand it. We might not feel it. We might not know what the path holds, but we know God. And that can sustain us. That can give us joy. See, the challenge is not our enemy. Our enemy has already been defeated. Our submission to God, to His will, to His purpose, and to His plan for our life is the key to living victoriously. We will do well in our life when we stop blaming the enemy and start trusting God with our lives and start accepting personal responsibility for things in our life that we have the control over. As we get ready to wrap up, you know, life is not without its challenges. Life can be challenging. It doesn't mean we can be overcomers. Just, just think about this, though. Beginning of the 20th century, at least in one way of looking at it, was some of the worst times of humanity. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were born in the year 1900. 1900. On your 14th birthday, World War I began. On your 18th birthday, it ended. 22 million people lost their lives in that war. The very same year that that war ended, 1918, the Spanish flu pandemic hit. Within one year, 500 million people, about a full one-third of the world's population, were infected with it. An estimated 50 million people died from the Spanish flu in 1918. On your 29th birthday, the Great Depression started. Beginning in the United States and spreading around the world, the Great Depression had a devastating impact on both rich and poor. Unemployment skyrocketed. Stock markets crashed and many, many suffered for several years. Then at the age of 39, World War II began. And it lasted for six years and one day. And between 70 and 85 million people lost their lives. And that's just to get to 1945. You're not even middle-aged yet. You may be just hitting middle-aged. Yet despite all those tragedies, war, famine, economic disrepair, disease, and despair in people's hearts. Here's another perspective for you. You ready? You're born in 1900. And in October 1900, a man by the name of Charles Parham founded the Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. And he began teaching that the Holy Spirit would be received with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. On January the 1st, 1901, a student by the name of Agnes Osman, having asked that hands would be laid upon her, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and received it with the evidence of speaking in tongues. In 1905, Parham traveled to Orchard, Texas, close by Houston, and he began to hold meetings, and a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred, and an entire community was transformed. Leaving Orchard, Parham began ministering in Houston, and thousands attended meetings at the Bryan Hall. Healings and miracles occurred, and many received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1906, Parham sent Lucy Farrow, a student, to Los Angeles in California to 
to start a work there. And a few months later, William Seymour, another student, joined her. As they preached the Pentecostal message, thousands attended the services. Many miracles, signs, and wonders began to happen, and many received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in what would later be known as the Azusa Street Revival. In that short period of time, the fires from the Azusa Street Revival began to spread. Multiple organizations was, were formed. In 1945, we came into being. The United Pentecostal Church International was formed. And all over the world today, this Pentecostal message is being preached around the world. And it is the fastest growing movement within Christianity. The point is simple. What might have been one of the worst times for humanity, the beginning of the 20th century, was also a time of great revival. Despite what you are going through today, you could be in the best season of your life. God could be waiting to act, to pour out His Spirit, to use you in ministries you don't even know about, to minister through you, to help people, to do all sorts of things. Our key, though, is to stop blaming and focusing on the enemy and focusing on what God can do in our life. Amen. Praise the Lord. Why don't we all stand this morning? We're all guilty of blaming the enemy. We've done it before. Amen. But we've got to get our eyes off of the problems, off of the enemy, and get our eyes onto Jesus and make Him our focus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's just bow our heads right now, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this lesson. Thank you, Lord, that you've challenged us, Jesus, to not blame the enemy, God. Lord, it's, it's so easy to do. Lord, the devil's attacking me. The devil's in my life. The devil's making life difficult. You know what, Lord? If we could just learn to keep our eyes on you and to make decisions in accordance with your will and what you would have our, us do, what our families do, our communities, our churches do, Lord God. Lord, you would be able to move so much better, Lord God. Our church would grow and, and things would happen in our life, Lord God. We would grow relationship with you lord help us lord i pray to focus on you oh god and to make you the center of our attention lord god to take responsibility lord on ourselves lord to be able to follow your word to do what you're asking us to do we love you we thank you jesus for this day in the name of jesus and everybody said amen, amen. praise the lord let's give the lord a hand clap